Welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of Darker Things. I'm your host, Scott Jagow. Today, a story that's very personal to me. The 1996 Centennial Park bombing at the Atlanta Olympics. I was there the night the bomb went off, and I participated in the media coverage that followed as a producer with NBC News. It was a career-changing moment as I watched the destruction of one man's life, Richard Jewell, a man who had saved people's lives but he went from hero to public enemy because the FBI and the relentless 24-hour news cycle determined that's what he was. After we go through what happened, I'm pleased to welcome Lisa Napoli to the podcast. She's a former colleague at Marketplace Radio and author of the new book, Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24-Hour News. The games of the 26th Olympiad began July 19th with a national sense of unease. Two days earlier, TWA Flight 800 had plummeted into the Atlantic, killing 230 people. It was later determined that terrorism had nothing to do with the crash, but many people at the time believed the plane had been shot down or that there was a bomb on board. Plus, the Oklahoma City bombing was still on people's minds from the previous year. So with more than 8 million tickets sold and athletes from nearly 200 countries gathering in Atlanta, security at the games was on high alert. Among those on security detail was 33-year-old Richard Jewell. He had bounced around several jobs, working at a sheriff's department, a local college. He had a reputation for being overzealous, breaking up parties, ratting kids out to their parents, even stopping drivers off campus. He was let go. But he got a job with AT&T working security at Centennial Park, which was the town square for the games. The night of July 26th, a Friday, Jewel was on duty working a concert that included Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. I was a few hundred yards away on the edge of the park, taking in a James Brown concert with a coworker. Both concerts kept going well after midnight, which is about when Jewel zeroed in on a backpack. It was under a bench where several guys were drinking. He kept his eye on it, and when the guys got up and didn't take it with them, Jewel got worried. He informed agents with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and they called in someone from the ATF to have a look at the backpack. Jewel later told 60 Minutes what happened next. He crawled under the bench, and he was undoing the top of the bag with his hand, and he was doing his flashlight like this, and all of a sudden, he just froze. Not even moving his arms, he just rolled out of the way. When he rolled out of the way, he jumped up and ran over to the other agents that were standing about 10 feet away. What really made me think, this is, uh-oh, this is bad, is there was like a little line in training that they taught you that if you see an ATF agent running, you better be in front of him. So did you start to run too? No, sir. Instead, Jewel and others began clearing the area, telling people to evacuate and get as far away as possible. A 911 call had come into dispatch from a payphone nearby. There is a bomb in Centennial Park, the caller said. You have 30 minutes. At this point, they only had two or three. 
At around the same time, we stepped out of the House of Blues tent and started walking toward the park entrance. All of a sudden, we heard people screaming and a crowd started rushing towards us. Some people were bleeding. That 40-pound olive green backpack was filled with three pipe bombs and masonry nails. It had exploded. Chaos engulfed us. Medics rushed to treat the injured. I looked around wondering what I could do. As a journalist, my first instinct was to record what was happening so the story could be told. I spotted a photographer with an NBC logo on his camera and asked if I could help. He handed me a microphone and we interviewed witnesses like this one. They were about to start a new song and bam, you know, just a really loud noise and then we saw people bleeding. There was, there was steel hitting people and we were rushing people to medical. Shrapnel from the bomb killed 44-year-old Alice Hawthorne of Albany, Georgia. There were 111 others injured. A cameraman from Turkey who was running toward the scene suffered a heart attack and died. I stayed awake for the next 48 hours. In those 48 hours, the nation turned on edge. President Clinton decried the bombing as an evil act of terror. It was aimed at the innocent people who were participating in the Olympic Games and in the spirit of the Olympics. An act of cowardice that stands in sharp contrast to the courage of the Olympic athletes. The president also said the games would go on. He praised medical personnel and the security officers like Richard Jewell who moved people away from the bomb. They saw the package. They alerted the bomb squad. They cleared the crowd. They prevented a much greater loss of life. Meanwhile, Jules' employer, AT&T, booked him 11 interviews, including The Today Show, local TV, and others. He humbly responded to on-air hosts who praised him as a hero. I just happened to be at the right place, at the right time, and did the job that I was trained to do. Then, on Tuesday, July 30th, three days after the bombing, Centennial Park reopened. That day, in its afternoon edition, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution ran a story with this headline. FBI suspects hero guard may have planted bomb. Suddenly, Richard Jewell was a hero in quotation marks. I had recovered from my 48-hour producing bender. I was rested, working on the national desk for NBC News Channel, the feed service for NBC affiliates and shows. We saw that CNN had gone live reading that headline on the air. The question was, should we push out the story in the same way? I was a young producer with absolutely no authority, but I gave my opinion anyway that we should wait. Something felt wrong about making this public without any corroboration or further investigation. And I knew that going with the newspaper story on the air would make NBC 100% liable for it. My take on it was ignored, and we put the story out to affiliates. Then, Tom Brokaw of Nightly News went on the air and said this to Olympics host Bob Costas. The speculation is that the FBI is close to making the case in their language. They probably have enough to arrest him right now, probably enough to prosecute him, but you always want to have enough to convict him as well. There are still some holes in this case. 
Costas, it should be noted, had the right instincts and made it clear Jules should be presumed innocent, even though most of the media was not treating the story that way. Costas later explained, I just simply said, what if he isn't the guy? What if they don't charge him? What if they don't arrest him? Where does he go to get his reputation back? If they're not right about this, and if they're not willing to stand behind it and prove it, something terribly wrong has happened here. But the damage was done. The public thought Richard Jewell was the Olympic Park bomber thanks to the FBI and the media. They said he fit the profile. They formed an image of a 30-something, overzealous, wannabe cop, loner, living with his mother. Their apartment was searched and besieged by hundreds of media members. Can you categorically say that you did not do this? I did not do it. Categorically? Yes. Why are they questioning you? Um, it's just part of the, part of the uh, process. Jewell was interrogated by the FBI, and in a ruse, they told him he was part of a training video. When he was read his Miranda rights as part of this lie, Jewell called an attorney and shut it down. But the FBI continued to track him, and the media kept condemning him. Mike Wallace later asked Jewell about this. Jay Leno called you Unidoofus. A federal agent was quoted as saying you were Unibubba. Your mother was called the Unimama. Yes, sir. Weeks into the investigation, Jewel's mother, Bobby, pleaded for all of this to stop, and Jewel's attorney, Lynn Wood, told 60 Minutes what had transpired. Mr. President, please clear my son's <laughs> The FBI got what it wanted. It got the image of, we have our man and we have him quickly. The media got what it wanted. It got a dramatic headline. Everybody got what they wanted. The problem is they threw over the side an innocent man, Richard Jewell, and they've permanently destroyed parts of his life, damaged his life. Finally, on October 26th, almost three months to the day of the bombing, the FBI announced that Richard Jewell was no longer a suspect. He had never been arrested or charged. Jewell held a press conference. In its rush to show the world how quickly it could get its man, the FBI trampled on my rights as a citizen. In its rush for the headline that the hero was the bomber, the media cared nothing for my feelings as a human being. At the end of 1996, Jewell settled claims of libel against NBC News, CNN, and others, reportedly to the tune of about $2 million. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution fought him in court, and that battle went on for years. A huge hurdle for Jewell was that a judge ruled him in the case to be a public figure because of those interviews he did under the auspices of AT&T. In the end, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution prevailed. In the years that followed, the FBI connected the Olympic Park terror attack to other bombings in the South, including two at abortion clinics and one at a gay nightclub. Eventually, they honed in on Eric Robert Rudolph, who shot to the top of the FBI's most wanted list. On May 31, 2003, after years as a fugitive, he was finally apprehended in North Carolina. 
Rudolph is believed to belong to the Christian identity, known as a white supremacist sect, which is anti-gay, anti-Semitic, and anti-foreigner. It was the makeup of the bombs that led investigators to connect the bombings in Birmingham and Atlanta. Rudolph pled guilty in all of the bombings and is currently serving six consecutive life sentences. Jewell still struggled with his reputation as he told 60 Minutes in 2002. I'm gonna tell you something, Mr. Wallace. There's six, seven people in this room with us right now. Yeah. And I don't care what they say now. That first week, everybody in this room thought I was the bomber. That's true. Including me. Yes, sir. Five years later, at age 44, Jewell passed away due to complications from diabetes. He died a public figure he never wanted to be. Now let's welcome Lisa Napoli, author of Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and The Birth of 24-Hour News. Lisa, thanks for joining me. Great to talk to you again. Congratulations on the book. What inspired you to write it? Well, a couple of things. I had worked for CNN. I started my career there a long, long time ago. And when my last book came out, an old friend from back then said, you know, your next book should be about the creation of CNN because its 40th anniversary is coming up. And at first I thought there's just no way that's too huge. And then I started researching it and I realized that nobody had really told the story about what news was like right before CNN started. And that just got me very interested because of course, as you have, my whole career has been in the media and I've just always been interested in how it got to be the way it is right now. You know, the freneticism and the craziness. What are the elements you think existed when CNN started that have endured to today's media? Well, you know, what's so interesting is that when CNN started, nobody, you know, there was a, a little bit of um, all news radio, but no one had ever done that format on television. And it was so revolutionary and so strange that nobody believed that anybody would watch it, much less that it would be possible to fill the time. And of course, now, you know, it, the idea of 24 hour news is quaint because you have a phone and you're anywhere and you can find out what's happening in an instant. So it really is the same thing as 40 years ago, except accelerated and we take it for granted. Um, I think that's, that's a main, a main difference. Um, but the similarities are that, you know, people became intrigued by it. It took them a while. Um, and now of course people just feel like it's their birthright to know what's going on instantly. As you document in the book, in the time leading up to CNN's launch, there was this thought process, who wants to watch news more than an hour a day, let alone 24 hours a day? Right, right. News was not only unsexy, it was something a lot of people saw like eating broccoli. You know, it was, you know, I'll do it because they told me I have to do it. Uh, you know, and there were people who were news junkies who were interested in the news, but everybody was used to seeing news presented to them. The idea of watching a news story unfold or, you know, it, it, it was very unusual for that to have happened. And what was fascinating for me is that I'd always heard about the weekend after President Kennedy 
had been assassinated and and how the news business had rallied at that time in 1963 to cover the aftermath. But I never really thought about what it looked like or what that meant. And if you talk to people who were, you know, able to understand what was going on then, I was born, but I was just born. Um, you, you hear them talk about how extraordinary it was, I mean, obviously beyond the fact that this horrible incident had occurred, that they were able to keep watching the news unfold before their eyes. And then after that, it didn't happen again for quite some time that that the entire American populace would be focused on watching television and seeing what was happening. Now we take that for granted. We assume if there's an explosion or if somebody's shot or if there's a riot happening, that you're going to turn on the TV and you're going to see it happen before your eyes. But that very fundamental difference, which seems so obvious now and that people listening to this might go, okay, whatever, it really is a, a change because it's changed the way people look at news and expect to get their news. And that's slow eradicated this whole idea that news should be presented by somebody with authority who's thought about it and formatted it in a way, edited it, vetted the facts in a way um, that made it ready for you, ready for prime time, so to speak, as opposed to now where we don't even think about that. We just want to see it and then we'll worry about the specifics later on. And I thought it was interesting, the year before the Kennedy assassination was the launch of that Telstar satellite and the broadcast that happened between Europe and the United States, a live transmission. You had the Tabernacle Choir performing for a European audience on the air, and then you had baseball announcers greeting the Europeans. Ladies and gentlemen, we have just been informed that this baseball game is being seen in Europe right now over the Telstar satellite. Let's give all the baseball fans in Europe a big hello from Chicago. It seemed like a beautiful, hopeful moment to me. People were together. They were excited about what this technology might bring to the world. And then you fast forward to today, and it's all divisiveness and polarizing and Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Right. All you need to say is Twitter. It just stop right there. <laughs> no, it's true because um, like all technologies, there's good and bad with it. And that's what's so hard is that there's so much gray here. It's not an either or um, situation. It is a fan. The, the telephone is a fantastic invention that in, indelibly changed how we communicate with each other. And it's the same thing with television. It's a wonderful window on a world. And that Telstar was so extraordinary for me to read about and to watch as it seems like it was for you too, because you saw the sheer thrill that people had that they could see around the globe without getting there. I mean, now we also take the idea of train up uh, plane travel for granted, like you'd get on, well, not anymore, but you know, up until not very long ago, the idea that you could pay for a ticket and go somewhere else fairly easily, if you were able to pay for that ticket, 
was, you know, very, very pedestrian. Well, it wasn't the case in 1962. And the satellite changed everything. And that's, that's really the root of what changed everything for CNN and why I also was, as I kept digging more and more fascinated by it, because CNN wasn't started with any political agenda. It was basically started at a moment in time that technology came together and allowed it to happen, allowed all news to happen. Before 1980, it would have been virtually impossible to do it because you didn't have videotape in any measurable portable scale. You didn't have the way of transmitting that videotape through the skies, except literally sending it on an airplane um, to the next point. You didn't have cable, which allowed people to distribute signals of television uh, to places that it hadn't gone before. And so it was the confluence of all those things and this idea that people might want to watch something in the middle of the night uh, that that conspired to, to create CNN, not some vast conspiracy. And let's not leave out the main character of this story, the larger-than-life, egomaniacal, loose-cannon playboy that was Ted Turner. He was a guy who hated yes. the news. He never wanted to do the news. So, Lisa, what do you think it was that drove him to create what would become the most famous all-news network in the world? That's why I love this story so much. He he basically wanted to play around with these new toys, and he'd seen Jerry Levin, who at the time was a young guy with a service nobody heard of called Home Box Office, HBO, that was having a hard time getting it together. And he he wanted to do what Jerry Levin saw he could do. He was about to do with HBO, which was take it and and shoot it up to the satellite, this new first commercially available satellite. And Ted wanted to figure out what he could do, shoot up to the satellite too. And he figured if Jerry Levin was doing it with movies, he couldn't do it with movies. Plus the licensing issues were too complicated. So basically he sat around with a bunch of guys and brainstormed. And the thing that they came up with that quote unquote, would be easiest was making news. And even though news was not something he'd ever wanted to, or as you say, had, had expressed any interest in, that seemed like the logical toy, so to speak, um, to apply to this use of this technology. And nobody believed it could work. Nobody thought there'd be any call for it or interest. And in fact, when it launched, there were fewer than 2 million homes in the entire nation. I mean, there were only 18 million homes in the entire nation in 1980 that were wired for cable. Cable had not become a thing. So that's what's also fantastic about this story is that it really shouldn't have worked. It, it just should have just fallen apart right away. I thought it was funny that Turner told people that once CNN went on the air, that it would be on until the end of time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think I think he was actually prophetic there. Yeah. But the way you described the early days of CNN it sounded like it was part frat party. Mm -hmm. I think you used the term animal house meets network, which I thought was great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, had a, you had a bunch of low paid, uh, fresh out of college kids almost. And then you had these venerable hosts and reporters like Bernie Shaw and Daniel Shore. Yep. What's your sense of how that place functioned? 
barely is really what people, well, barely. And also just with a lot of energy and enthusiasm because all the people who joined either desperately needed a job or desperately wanted to play with this technology themselves. And there was no way that they were going to be able to do what Ted was able to do because nobody had that money. Uh, Now you could start a TV station with your iPhone, but then that was just remarkable. So this, this crazy constellation of people, as you say, with varying degrees of professionalism and experience all came together in the most unlikely place of Atlanta. Again, now you could start a fabulous anything as you have out of your home in wherever. Um, but, but you couldn't have done that then. And the idea that you would have a media property situated in Atlanta and which was not a big world-class city as it is today back then was remarkable, but these people marched there and they managed somehow, um, really, I think it was, to answer your question, because of energy, that they they marched together to make it all happen because they wanted to see what it would look like and how it might work, even though they didn't really necessarily believe that it was going to work either, which is also kind of funny. But there still were a lot of mistakes. Some of that could be expected, but there were some glaring ones early on that kind of foretold the future of 24-hour news. One of the first CNN moments was the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan, March 30th, 1981. The reporting on all the networks went something like this. The president is okay. Wait, no, he's not. Press Secretary James Brady, unfortunately, has passed. Wait, nope, that's not true either. (laughs) The way you described it was that news had become sports. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, I feel like this every time there's a presidential election, which unfortunately goes on for so many years now, it's always, which is that we look at politics or we look at, you know, an assassination attempt or attempt or anything as a sporting event. When you tune into a sporting event, you have no idea what's going to happen. And that's what's happened with news. You don't tune in and there's a guy delivering a report about what did happen. You're watching along with him as he watches what's happening. And that's what happened that day that the president, President Reagan, um, was on the other end of a bullet. And nobody was really clear if he had been on the other end of a bullet, but they all rushed to air because this little punky upstart called CNN, which, as I say, even then still wasn't in very many homes, was going on the air. And they felt they had to, too. Odds are pretty good that if CNN didn't exist, that they would not have. They might have rushed on the air and said, this just in, the president, you know, has been, there There got shots fired where the president was. We'll get back to you later. But because CNN existed and they didn't go off the air, they just kept on talking, uh, they felt like they had to also. And that's, you know, over 40 years devolved into the mayhem and nightmare of what I think TV news has become, which is speculative thumb up the butt of whoever's speaking for hours on end, or, you know, in the case of a presidential election, years on end until we find out the results. And then the, all the attendant crap that comes with that polling and, uh, you know, pontificating and on and on and on. Yeah, I'm with you on that. 
And of course, this episode relates the story of the Olympic Park bombing, Richard Jewell. I was working for NBC News Channel. And the way you describe CNN in the book sounds similar to those early days at NBC News Channel. A lot of young people, frenetic, energetic, go-getters. But there were a lot of times that things just weren't buttoned up. A lot of speculation during live shots. And that day Jewel was named a suspect started with CNN just going on the air and reading a headline. That was the moment I broke from what I was doing. I just knew it was wrong. I knew that was not right. Yep. Yep. You know, I had that feeling, a similar feeling when 9-11 happened. I had just lost my job at MSNBC. And I remember looking at 9-11 unfolding on the television, as everybody was doing, and thinking, I thank God I'm not there. I can't, I couldn't possibly be participating in this right now. Uh, that was my big aha moment about the news business. And yet, Scott, the cool thing about all of this technology is that it allowed people to have jobs. Um, not that, you know, it's technology's mandate to give us jobs, but it, but but things like NBC News Channel and CBS NewsPath and CNN before that um, and Fox News Service, which I worked for, the precursor to the Fox News Channel that's the nightmare it is today, was a bunch of CNN people who were exiled and came to work for or exiled themselves and left CNN to work for this rival service before there were um, other channels. Basically, that's all a long-winded way of saying a lot of people are working in the industry who would not have worked in the industry were there not this multiplicity of platforms and possibilities for people to enter the business who weren't, you know, the Walter Cronkites or the aspirants, Walter Cronkites. Um, is that better? Is it worse? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's bad. I think it's worse the quality is it worse that more people have jobs i don't know yeah i mean i i'll say right off the bat all all the people i worked with 99 percent of them great people intelligent uh it was just the machine that we right, right. it's yeah it wasn't the people it's definitely the machine and the non-stop craving that the machine had for producing content because it was Local affiliates, you know, they had four o'clock news, four thirty, five, five thirty six. Then you go to six thirty, and then you have ten, ten thirty, eleven. Right. I mean, it's just it grew and grew and grew, so that uh, you know you you had to go on the air live, and you didn't always have the story. It was just you had to speculate, and then later you had to correct, and that was what over and over I saw, particularly on CNN, just constant correcting of wrong things that were said, and it just became part of the process. Well, as they call it, feeding the beast, right? You know, they have to come up with something to feed the beast. And even when, right before CNN started, the fear was, what the hell are we going to put on 24-7? Will we have to blow something up to feed the beast? Uh, and they were kidding, um, and they found out very quickly as soon as they went on the air that that it wasn't a joke, that they had to had to root around for what we now call content, not that we called it back then content. Um, yeah. And I remember, too, working in local news in North Carolina and thinking one more snowstorm, 
one more Christmas, the, the sidebars for Christmas, it just, um, it's, it's just never ending. You have to constantly come up with something to fill the time. And when there isn't anything to fill the time, it's not like you can take a pass. I've, I've said a thousand times during the course of this pandemic, it would be just so great if we could go back to one half hour of news at night delivered at, you know, whatever hour they chose and have people tell us something real and then stop as soon as they're done. Uh, you know, if they don't have a half hour, just stop because filling the time is not helping anybody. I think it's making things worse. But of course that's, there's no way we're going back to <laughs> right. that. Well, that's why I don't run a newsroom somewhere. <laughs> because... uh, but, but I do, I do want to ask about Ted Turner in this respect. You know, he's, big into the environment. He's donated to the United Nations. He's a person that while he has all kinds of character flaws, he's also a person that wanted to do good in the world based on what I was reading about him with you. And CNN, he thought it was going to do good for the world to have all this news on television. I don't know what the question is there. Did did he accomplish something good? Well, do you think? I mean, he... He achieved what Marshall McLuhan, the great media theorist, had talked about years before, which was this global village. He was the first person because of the way he deployed the satellite cable technology, uh, first in the United States, then pirated by Fidel Castro, and then on calculated a, a calculated schedule around the world, the idea that there would be this news service that transmitted news around the world. And it was um, eye-opening and unifying in the sense that you know, you could watch news from places that you weren't going to go and learn about events that were happening around the world from wherever you were, thanks to CNN. And that was his starry-eyed vision, was that maybe if I can see what's going in, on in Nairobi, um, I won't hate the Kenyans or vice versa. They won't hate the Americans. And that was, you know, really at his base, what fired him up once he saw the power of what he'd created. I mean, of course, the bad side of it is that it's... Well, I mean, we've been talking about what the bad side is. So it's he did he did have a vision that this would help achieve peace. Um, but again, it was a super romantic vision, as Ted was. He was a very romantic, um, starry eyed person. I do want to get into some optimism here, Lisa. I don't want to go all the way down the dark path because we're we're looking for light here on darker things. <laughs> so. Some some of the things that kind of give me hope is with the demise of newspapers, there has been a hole that's been filled by some people online with investigative journalism. I'm thinking podcasts, especially uh, in the dark comes to mind as one of the podcasts that uh, had such an, an incredible impact. And that case went to the Supreme Court. Um, so what are the things that give you hope uh, that there are? There's there's light out there in terms of media. Not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. Sorry, I know that's <laughs> off topic here, off theme. Um, you know, it gives me hope to have written a book like this and that people will read it and hopefully learn more. And there are all kinds of people out there digging and investigating and creating podcasts and writing books uh, that go deeper than that superficial 
you know, headline hit where I look hot on television and maybe you listen to what I had to say and then on to the next thing. So I think that you know, people, information wants to be free and people want to synthesize it and other people want to consume it. So that's good. That's really good. Uh, it's just a matter of getting a lot more people to want to spend the time to go more deeply. And that's, you know, that's a real, a real issue. And if I knew how to fix that, I wouldn't be sitting around writing history books. I'd be, you know, doing something grander. I guess another positive development to me is the democratization of information so that people all over the world uh, can provide information through social media and then they can receive it. Yes. And, and it's, it's not coming from the top down always. So the, the old model was, I, as you mentioned earlier, I am the authority. I am sitting in my chair. Mm -hmm. It is 630 and I am going to tell you the news now in a robotic voice. It's different these days. It's, it's more about people, you know, I guess you have to worry about sloppiness, of course, still, but the democratization part of it, is that something that you see? Yeah, well, and that's actually, that was the underpinning of Rhys Schoenfeld, the first president of CNN. His thought was for years he'd been trying to get into the mainstream system of news as it existed in the 70s and the 60s, and he hadn't been able to do that. So his whole idea was that CNN, because of these technological tools that they had, was going to be able to introduce new voices, new points of view, new people would have their hands on that technology. So in his sense, he was doing that in 79 and 80, um, as best that could be done with the available resources then, as opposed to now where, yes, an iPhone, a computer, uh, an internet connection allows you to broadcast, transmit all around the world in an instant. So it's really, it's been a slow march to that point, to this point, from where Rhys Schoenfeld was back then, 40 years ago. And yeah, that's a fantastic thing. It, it you know, there's all this discussion about diversity and inclusion. Um, well, there really was very little diversity and inclusion in journalism or in the media back 40 years ago, and certainly longer than that. So it really, it, it did make a big difference that the tools were were um, accelerating and that they were more portable. Um, but as we keep saying, it, there's a gray area. It doesn't, it doesn't solve everything, but it definitely it allows more people the voice. There's long been a debate, as you know, in media about giving people what they want versus giving people what you think they should get in terms of yeah. information, you know, the highest quality investigative reporting, double sourced, all that stuff. And, and the type of news we, you know, we need to give foreign news, uh, things like that. And I, you know, you look at the history of the evolution of the TV stations on cable yeah. and network, um, TLC, you know, used to be the learning channel and Dateline NBC, believe it or not, used to only be about the day's right. news and then it became a true crime show and it it all goes back to the ratings uh people say maybe they want good news but then they watch if it bleeds it leads crime stories well you know it's funny hearing you say that i'm remembering that um edward r murrow 
his, one of his shows, you know, the vaunted paragon of journalistic excellence, broadcast journalism excellence, his show was canceled for a quiz show back in the 50s. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, the problem is that if you need to create an economically viable, sustainable product, it's got to be economically viable and sustainable. And, you know, that's sadly, um, I'm writing a book right now about public broadcasting. And that's certainly even become true in public broadcasting. And it wasn't that untrue even back in the 70s when public broadcasting first started. So, you know, look, if you and I want to just do something that's cool and smart and we feel like is important, then we can. But if we need to make a living doing it, it's a whole different sensibility. Um, so does that mean you pander? I don't, I hope not. Um, but you know, look, I, if someone said, I'll pay you a lot of money to write a romance novel, what would I do? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's tough. I mean, the, the, the economic reality is reality and, uh, but that, and that's certainly why you see what you see happening. You know, it's really interesting to think about just to bring it back to CNN for a second, just as, as your example, CNN created all kinds of issues until 1996 when Fox came along and then a whole new set of issues came up once there was competition and once the competition had a certain point of view. And, you know, CNN introduced all kinds of, of the, these difficulties that we're talking about, uh, you know, less factual accuracy, the need for the speed, the need for um, being first at the expense of, of you know, the quality. Uh, and filling the time with yelling chat shows and all of that. But then Fox came and that really ratcheted up in a big way. And they had to do what they did. I mean, they didn't do it ultimate, initially. Um, it, they, it took a while and different management to get to the formula. And I'm not saying I agree with it, but you can understand why they had to pander because there was no way for them to compete unless they pandered, sadly. Now, maybe I'm maybe I'm so wrong. Maybe if they'd been high minded and, you know, the McNeil error report quality news. First of all, they, there's no way they could do McNeil error report quality news 24 hours a day. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I, I think that is, you know, that is one of the conclusions of your book is that this beast that was created, this 24 hour news cycle, it is what it is. And. Like you said, it takes time and resources to create content that is fully buttoned up, fully investigated, of the highest quality, uh, you know, as accurate as possible, et cetera. And that just can't happen when you have to fill 24 hours of news every single day uh, till the end of time, apparently. Um, right. <laughs> Which is now. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, in, in fact, I didn't write this in the book because I didn't find this out till afterwards, but CBS, or I think I hinted at it, CBS was one of the places that was toying with the idea of doing 24-hour news. And Walter Cronkite, who was still around then, was concerned about how it would get, you know, what it would look like and how the standards would be kept up. Um, there was also the issue for them of union labor, and they couldn't afford the union labor that was necessary to engine a 24-hour newscast. 
at that time, um, or ever probably. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's, it's, it's the same. It really is the same thing as with McDonald's or with fast fashion, you know, buying something from Hermes is different than buying something at H and M. Um, it's got a different sort of quality to it just because it takes longer, longer to manufacture. I want to mention one more thing before we wrap up. Back to Richard Jewell and the day he was named a suspect. I was on the national desk arguing that we should be a little more careful with this story. The response that came to me was, yeah, but CNN's running it. (laughs) I'll never forget that. Yeah, that's always my favorite reason. You know, every everybody had a mother or a parent who said, if someone else jumped off the bridge, would you do it too? And that's the, you know, journalistic equivalent. Lisa, I really appreciate your time. This has been informative and enlightening. Congratulations on the book and looking forward to your next one. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking with you, Scott. Thank you for asking me. My pleasure. Again, the book is Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the Birth of 24-Hour News. You can find out more about Lisa's books and her career at lisanapoli.com. If you haven't seen the Clint Eastwood-directed movie, Richard Jewell, I recommend it. It's mostly true to the story, with one glaring exception, the extremely untrue, misogynistic portrayal of the newspaper reporter. Other than that, it's a good telling of the story. That's a wrap for season one of Darker Things. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon and stay safe. Thank you.